Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We are excited that you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our study through the New Testament book of James. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text NEW TO HOPE to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form for you to fill out so we can get to know you better. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. I want you to think about what is your favorite passage of Scripture in the Bible. Your favorite passage of Scripture in the Bible, and get get it in your mind, get the reference, because on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to just shout out loud your favorite passage of Scripture, okay? So you got yours? If you got yours, not happy. You know what it is. All right, you ready? If you're not sure between two or three, just pick one. It's all right. One, two, three, shout it out. (laughs) That's awesome. Sounded like speaking in tongues. It's wonderful. I really don't, I didn't really hear any jump out at me, so since I have the microphone, I'm going to read you my favorite passage, all right? My favorite passage of Scripture in the Bible is a little bit unusual to be your favorite passage of Scripture, but it's my favorite passage of Scripture, and it was written by Paul in the New Testament. It's in the book of Romans, and when I say that, some of you are already running to some passages in the book of Romans, thinking, ah, but I know what it is. But I know what his favorite is, but it's in the book of Romans, and it may not be the passage you're thinking about. Now, before I read it, I want to give you a little background as to who wrote it. This is Paul. Paul, the apostle. Like, when you put that title on it, that's heavy, right? It's not just Paul, the normal guy. It's not just Paul, the preacher. It's Paul, the apostle. Not only is it Paul the Apostle, it's Paul the Apostle that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. That's pretty good on your bio, right? How many books did you author? Well, just two-thirds of the New Testament. Not only did he write two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul was the great missionary to the Gentiles. We have some Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in our church. They trace their faith heritage back to the Acts 2 moment in Jerusalem. But for the rest of us that are non-Jews, it's Paul and his missionary journeys and taking the gospel to the Gentiles that ushered the rest of us into the kingdom of God. Not only that, Paul is one of the greatest church planters to ever walk the face of the earth. We had our M3 this week on campus, and we trained new church planters that are being sent out in the West to go plant churches. And there's nobody that was a better church planter than the Apostle Paul. So this is quite a pedigree that Paul has. And I want you to listen to what he says in Romans 7. For I do not understand... My own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me 
That's a good place for us all to say amen. That is in my flesh. Now, remember who's writing this. This is Paul. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Anybody else in the room identify with Paul here a little bit? I tell you, I love this passage of Scripture because it lets me know I'm not crazy, right? That, that I'm not broken beyond repair. If Paul can say that, then he goes, he said, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, Paul here is not passing the blame. Paul's not saying I'm not responsible. Paul is just acknowledging this real struggle on the inside between his flesh and the spirit of Christ within him. He says, so I find then it to be that the, the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Anybody else feel that way? For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Man, I don't know about you, but I resonate so with that. There is something in me that Christ placed in me when I came to know him that, that resonates with the law of God. There is something in my heart of hearts that longs for obedience, that longs for righteousness, that longs for the things of God. And yet there is also the wickedness of my flesh that at the same time still longs for the junk of this world. Listen to what Paul says, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm so glad he didn't stop there. Because that would be a low place to leave us, wouldn't it? Look what he said next. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Then I love how he goes right into chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Isn't that good? I love Romans 7. Like, I so identify with Romans 7. Here's what Paul says in Romans 7. The struggle is real. Sometimes it's the presence of the struggle that the enemy will use to make you feel less than as a citizen of the kingdom. And what I'm telling you is, Paul says, it's the presence of the struggle that is the assurance that you are 
a citizen of the kingdom. You see, without being a citizen of the kingdom, I don't have a struggle. I can just soak up the darkness. But now Christ in me won't let me stay there. Last weekend, Pastor Scott did a fantastic job unpacking the first section of James chapter 4, talking about the war from within. I watched online last weekend and had the privilege to to lean in and check that out last weekend and was so moved by the way he unpacked that section of Scripture and taught us the reality that there is a war on the inside of us. It's the same thing that Paul is writing about in the book of Romans. He's, He's telling us that the war is real. And if you think for a minute, just because you've come to know Jesus, that you're just going to skate your way to heaven... You're living in a delusion, right? The war internally is real. The struggle is real. The battle is real. And last weekend, we stopped with James talking to us about the reality of the war. But we're going to continue. If you're you're visiting with us, we're studying straight through this New Testament letter written by James. I'm going to go back and read a couple of verses that Scott looked at last weekend. James chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 6. Here's what James says. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's where we stopped last weekend. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Here's the question. How? How do I experience victory in the midst of the struggle? I get it. Man, I agree. I affirm. I shout amen. The struggle is real. The battle is genuine. It really happens in our lives. But how do we experience victory? What James is about to talk to us about in the text we're going to look at tonight is how we experience victory in the midst of the battle. And I want to say this. Victory is not found in your willpower. Victory is not found in our determination. Victory is not found in our commitment. How many times have you made that commitment and not kept it? How many times have you tried to will yourself over the struggle? And how many times have you found yourself falling on the backside of it again? Victory is not found in self-help. Victory is not found in commitment. Victory is not found in trying harder. Listen to me. Victory is found in the presence of the Lord. That's why, look what he goes on to say. Draw near to God. He just spent seven verses identifying the war. The war within that manifests itself in our relationships with each other. He just said there's grace. In the midst of the battle, there's grace that you can grab a hold of. There's grace that can sustain you. And he says, here's where it is. 
draw near to God? And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Many Christians have lived in the Romans 7 reality so long, they don't even think victory is possible. Maybe that's where you are this weekend. You've lived in the struggle for so long that you've just determined it just is what it is. And it's going to be what it is until I get to heaven. The reason a lot of Christians don't believe you can experience victory is because we confuse victory with deliverance. Let me give you two definitions. I want to define victory for you. When we talk about victory, here's what I'm talking about. God's gracious, what did he say? He gives more grace. God's gracious provision to experience victory in the war with my flesh. That's victory. In the midst of the war, you and I can, by the grace of God, experience victory. Will we, get, will we be perfect? Will we, will we achieve perfection? No. But in the midst of the war, we can have victory, which is the gracious provision of God to be victorious in the midst of the battle. That's what's promised to us on this earth. What's not promised to us on this earth is deliverance. Let me show you deliverance. God's gracious provision to remove my flesh. That's what a lot of Christians want right now. Take it away. Remove the struggle. I have no more battle. And a lot of Christians think because the battle's not gone, I'm not experiencing victory. Victory's not deliverance. Now listen, listen, listen. One glorious day. One glorious day, Jesus Christ is going to return. He is going to come again, and he is going to make all things new. And when he does, we're going to get our glorified bodies, and the old Romans 7 struggle will be gone. For eternity, we will no longer have to live with the tension and the battle and the struggle and the war. We will ultimately be delivered But if you're waiting in this life for deliverance, you're waiting in vain. The promise that we have today is victory. And victory comes through the presence of the Lord. Listen, here's what James is telling us. Everything changes in the presence of the Lord. So out of those verses, I want to ask and answer two questions in the time that we have left. Here's the first one. What does it mean to draw near to God? Because here's what James said. There's a real war. There's a real struggle. It's a battle within. It fleshes itself out in our relationships with each other. 
God's got grace that's available. We got to resist the enemy. We, we, we've got to submit to God. James says, here's where you find it. You got to draw near to God. But what does it mean to draw near to God? When you hear that phrase, what comes to your mind? For some people, the phrase draw near to God sounds like something uber spiritual, something mystical. Draw near to God. Does that mean we got to turn the lights out and light candles or what does that mean, draw near to God? For some people, the phrase draw near to God is terrifying. Draw near to God. Whoa, whoa. If I do, he might find out. <laughs> hey, I got bad news for you. <laughs> he already knows. <laughs> He's already aware. For some people, this phrase draw near to God is intimidating. Who am I to think I could come to the presence of God? What does it mean to draw near? Now, this phrase, draw near, it's not a super spiritual phrase. <laughs> Excuse me. It was a phrase that was borrowed from everyday life in James's time. It was a phrase that people would use in common everyday language. It just meant to come near or to approach. And it's describing someone approaching God in an act or attitude of personal worship. One Greek scholar said it marks those who long to come into the closest possible relationship with God. When James says draw near to God, he's describing us drawing near to the presence of God in an attitude of personal worship. And here's what else you need to know about this phrase. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Meaning James is not saying, would you prayerfully consider drawing near to God? James is saying, speaking with authority, that we are commanded as followers of Jesus to draw near to God. Now, when we hear the word command, sometimes the hair stands up on the back of our neck and we bristle against the idea of a command. But remember what I've told you about commands in the Bible. When God says, don't do something, what he's really saying is, don't hurt yourself. You see, God created life. God knows how life's to be lived. God knows how to get the most, the best experience out of life. And when God says, don't do that, he's not trying to rob us of all the joy and pleasure of that experience. God's saying, don't hurt yourself. When God says, do this, like this command, this is not a negative, this is a positive. He's saying, I want you to draw near to God. Here's what he's really saying. Help yourself. You see, commanding us to draw near to God is inviting us to enjoy all the goodness of the life that God has for us. Let me give it to you in a statement. Here's what it means to draw near to God. To draw near to God means drawing near to God means time spent alone daily enjoying the presence of God. That's all he's simply describing here. Time spent alone daily. It's daily because the way that this, this command is written in the text, it describes an action that happens in time. It's not the present active tense in the New Testament, which would describe ongoing continuous action. If that's what he used here, what he would be saying is live 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year in an awareness of the presence of God. But that's not what he said. What he describes here is an action that takes place at a moment in time, but it happens repeatedly day after day after day. He's 
describing you and I carving out time in our lives daily to enjoy the presence of God. Now, this command assumes a relationship. Meaning this, in order to draw near to God, like James is talking about here, you first must have a relationship with God. What James says here, the way James is writing, this is not an invitation to the unbeliever to come to God. This is an invitation to those that already know God to draw near to him daily, intimately, personally, in time, alone with God. You say, well, pastor, what about me? I'm I'm here at church and a friend invited me or I just happened by and I don't have a relationship with God. What's God's invitation for me? Here's what you need to know. God's invitation to you today is that he wants a relationship with you. Listen, he wants a relationship with you so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world because he loves you. Jesus came into the world, and Jesus came as God in the flesh, the Son of God. He took all of your sin and all of my sin on himself. He died on a cross for our sin. He rose again to pay the penalty. He stepped in our place, paid the penalty that we owed. He died for our sin, but then he rose again from the dead as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin. And now here's God's invitation to you. Believe in my son Jesus and I welcome you into my family. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the starting point for you today is not to get up tomorrow and try to carve out some time to be alone with God. The starting point for you right here, right now, today is to put your faith and trust in Jesus and be born again into the family of God. But for those that already have a relationship with God, James is speaking And he's saying the same thing the writer of Hebrews said. Once you have a relationship with God, listen to the way the writer of Hebrews writes it. Listen to what he said in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then with, say that word out loud. Let us then with confidence, do what? Draw to who? The what? He's talking about. The throne room of God, where God Almighty, the God who spoke everything we can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell into existence, that God is seated on the throne of the universe. And he says, once you have a relationship with God because of Jesus, now with confidence we can come into the throne of grace. Why? Look, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's what that means. You don't have to sheepishly make your way. Well, Lord, I know I hadn't been all I should be. Because of Jesus, any moment, any day, with confidence, you have access into the very presence of God himself. That's what James is talking about, drawing near to God. A couple of things that that this drawing near to God encompasses. Number one, there should be an awareness of God. Drawing near to God is about an awareness of the presence of God. 
Because when I read that definition a moment ago, when I said drawing near to God means time spent daily alone with God, immediately some of us, here's where we run. Oh, he's talking about reading my Bible, praying, meditation, fasting. But I think it's important to note James didn't say any of that. He didn't say, if you want victory, read your Bible. He didn't say, if you want victory, be sure you pray. What did he say? Draw near to God. Now, here's what I'm saying. The word, prayer, meditation, those are means by which we move into the presence of God. But here's what's happened. In the church, one of the reasons we don't experience victory, we've substituted spiritual activity for spiritual intimacy. And when we settle for spiritual activity in the place of spiritual intimacy, we will never experience the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Well, I read my Bible today. I'm good. I'm good today. No, the question is, did I meet with God today? And what James is talking about here describes this awareness. You say, where do you see that? Look at verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord. The word before there is a Greek word that's two words put together. Now, here's the two words that are put together in the Greek language. In and face. Humble yourselves before. Humble yourselves in the face of God. James is describing a time that we carve out daily to come face to face with God. And I love that this phrase, humble yourselves, the way it's written in the Greek language, it really is best translated, be humbled. Be humbled. It's passive. It means the subject is receiving the action. Because to be honest, you can't really humble yourself, right? What do you mean? I humble myself. Listen, if you said that, you, you probably hadn't. <laughs> Here's what he's describing. Face-to-face with God, so overwhelmed by his greatness that I'm brought low. I'm so aware of the glory and the greatness of God. Let me, let me ask you a question. Do you set aside time daily to be wowed by the greatness of God? Here's what I'm telling you. This can't be practiced grabbing your online devotional on the way out the door. This is not experience listening to SOS radio as you drive to work. And listen... I love SOS Radio. I thank God for the ministry of SOS Radio. I thank God for online devotionals. Those are great supplements. But what what James is describing is not a drive-through. It's not a drive-by. It's sitting at the feet of our Lord. It's, it's, It's seeking Him through His Word. It's becoming so in awe of His glory that we're humbled and wowed in the presence of the glory of God. I love the way A.W. Tozer writes about it. Listen to what he says. Nothing should so occupy the mind of the Christian than discovering God each day. The man who would truly know God must give, say it out loud, time to him. 
Let me ask you a question. You, how many of you want victory? Let me say, you want victory? You tired of the Romans 7? You want victory? Here's the question. You carving out time? Here's what that means. You don't microwave victory. Victory happens out of the overflow of intimacy with the Father. When we're so aware of His glory. It's like the old hymn writer said. The things of this world grow strangely dim in light of His glory and His grace. But if we don't choose time spent Become over, becoming overwhelmed with His glory and His grace. Guess what? The things of this world glow bright and attractive. It's the second part of this. Not only an awareness of God, but a brokenness before God. <laughs> Look what he says in verse number 9. Be wretched. It's a word that means miserable. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Now put that together. Draw near to God. Be miserable. Mourn. Weep. I know you're probably going to leave tonight and make that the screensaver on your phone, right? That, that's going to become your memory verse. Man, I've been looking for one to pick me up. There's my verse. Be miserable. Mourn. Weep. Look, he goes on to say, let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. What in the world is Paul talking or James talking about here? All these words speak to our brokenness before God. Here's what he's describing. When you carve out time to be wowed by the glory of God, here's what happens. We become very aware of how far we are from who he's conforming us to be in the image of Jesus. All these words, you know what they're describing? Grief. And here's what happens in the heart of the Christian when they get in the presence of God. We grieve over the sinfulness of our own flesh. And that grieving leads us to a surrender. It leads us to a yielding. I love the way Andy Stanley writes about it in his book, Louder Than Words. That's what he says. When what grieves God no longer grieves you, your heart is hard. When what bothers God doesn't bother you anymore, your heart 
is hard. Scott talked last weekend about friendship with the world, and I love those three statements that he used. The second one in particular I thought was powerful in my own life. When I begin to get friendly with the world, I lose my sensitivity to the Spirit of God. Scott talked last weekend about those calluses that he developed on his fingers from playing guitar and how he lost the sensitivity in those fingers as he became better and better and better at playing guitar. And that's what happens in our lives. The more we befriend the world, we get those calluses in our heart. Our heart begins to get hardened to the things of God. What grieves the heart of God doesn't grieve us anymore. But here's what James is saying. The only way to break up the hardness of our heart, the only way to rip off the calluses is to carve out time to sit in the presence of God, be wowed by his glory, and grieve over our own sin, and then surrender our lives in a fresh way. Back to him. This surrender is twofold. It's outward. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Hands speak to outward action or behavior. Sinners is this idea of those that miss the mark or don't measure up. As I pursue the presence of God, I become aware of those actions and those behaviors in my life that don't measure up to Jesus. And here's what we do in those moments in our time with God. We surrender those things. We lay them on the altar. But there's also an inward surrender. He goes on to say, purify your hearts, you double-minded. God's not just interested in the actions on the outside. When we get in the presence of God, when we draw near to God and we're overwhelmed by His glory and we see His greatness and His grace and we're grieving over the sin in our own heart and we make a surrender, we give Him those actions, but we also give Him our heart again. It's what the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 139, he described this process like this. Listen to it. The psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. I love this. That word search there at the beginning, it's a, it's a Hebrew word that, that describes an archaeological digging. It's, it's boring into the ground. What the psalmist here is saying is, God, in your presence, would you drill deep in my heart? And would you expose, look what he says. Point out in me anything that offends you. And lead me along the path of the everlasting life. Let me give you some handles for this. What does this look like practically? I'm, I've carved out time to be with the Lord. I got my Bible. I got my journal. But I'm not just checking off the list. God, I genuinely want to be, a lot of times for me, here's how I start my time with the Lord. I start by just saying, God, today, everything in me wants to rush through this and get on with my day. Everything in me wants to check this off the list. But Lord, today, here's what I know. If I'm going to walk in victory today, God, I need a fresh encounter with you today. So Lord, by faith, I know that you're here, and God, I ask you to use your word to speak to me. Does it feel like lightning bolts and tear showers every day? No, it doesn't feel like that at all, but here's what you can know. He'll meet with you. It's where you find grace. When you meet with the Lord, let me give you three words to kind of just kind of guide this brokenness and surrender. Here's the first word, confess. Confess. 
The writer of Proverbs says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The word confess is a word that just means to say the same thing. It means to agree with God, meaning this, when you're in the presence of God and God begins to make some stuff aware in your heart, in your life, don't argue. Don't try to justify it. Don't explain why it's okay. Don't explain why your circumstances are unique. He's not interested in your arguments. He's heard them all before. Here's where we start. We confess, God, you're right and I'm wrong. Number two, we renounce. We renounce. What does it mean to renounce? To renounce is to formally declare your abandonment of it. It's to leave it. It's what Paul wrote about in Romans 6. He said, let not sin therefore reign. That word reign is a word that means to rule or to exercise authority. He said, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passage. When God makes you aware of that thing, that sin, that action, that attitude in his presence, and you realize there's something in you that's offensive to God, the first thing you do is you confess it. God, you're right. I'm wrong. Here's the second thing. We renounce it. What does that mean? Here's what that means. God, that's not who I am anymore. It may be who I used to be, but Lord, I know it's a lie. I know it's not going to deliver what it's promising. I know it's not going to satisfy me. I know it's not going to fulfill me. I know it's not going to bring me joy. So God, I declare that's not who I am in Jesus anymore. And God, I renounce that. I I abandon that. Lord, I leave that here on the altar. And here's the third word, embrace. Embrace what? Embrace God's forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In your time alone with God, you're drawing near to God. Overwhelmed with the glory of God, deeply broken in your own heart over your own sin. What do you do? Confess it. Renounce it. And embrace the amazing forgiveness of God. Let me close with the last question. What happens when I draw near to God? When I carve out time daily to be alone in the presence of God, what happens when I draw near to God? Let's go back where we started. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God. And he what? Aren't you glad it didn't say might? Aren't you glad it didn't say will consider? You draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Everything changes in the presence of God. I read a book. I've actually read it a couple of times. It's a book by one of my favorite authors whose name is Andrew Murray. He was South African. He's now in heaven with the Lord. The name of this book is The Master's Indwelling. And I go back to this same section over and over again and just read it because it really encapsulates, I believe, what James is describing here. I'll put it up on the screen, but don't you listen as I read this paragraph. Every morning when God wakes you, you need to put your heart your life, your house, and your business into the hands of Jesus. Wait on him. If need be, in silence or in prayer. 
until he gives you the assurance, my child, for today all is safe. I take charge. And morning by morning, he will renew the blessing. Morning by morning, you will go out from your quiet time in the consciousness that today I have had fellowship with my king. And it's all right. Jesus has taken charge. And so day by day, here it is. You can have grace to leave all in the hands of Jesus. And that is how we can experience victory in the midst of a struggle. Thanks for listening to the Hope Church LV podcast. If you haven't done so already, go rate and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Have a great rest of your day.